0: If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5 is where we are. Now, if you, if you remember, we've been working through the Beatitudes, because the Beatitudes have a, have a very certain word at the beginning of them. Do you guys remember what that word is? It is blessed. Blessed be the, blessed be the, again and again and again. And we've talked about this several times. The word blessed means what? Do you guys remember? It means Happy. And so really what we're talking about as we understand and study the Beatitudes more and more and more is, as our sermon series says, which I don't see the picture up there and that's totally fine, uh, we're talking about the pursuit of happiness. Amen. And and it's one of those things I think that if you go through and you're studying uh, the American history and the American War for Independence and things like that, in some of our founding documents we talk about life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. And now, I have argued many times, and I think this is a fair critique to make, that the idea that what we should pursue is just happiness in general, and that should be the rudder of the ship, is a dangerous one. And I think it's what's gotten us into a lot of the, the precarious and difficult moral situations that we find ourselves in our day. That basically sounds like Disney, doesn't it? Do what makes you happy. But when you really understand What happiness actually is, and what truly pursuing it looks like, now I think we can talk. What we're we're really getting after here is what is real happiness, and how do we really find it as a created people? If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And then we're going to continue our series this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. Now remember, there's that flip we talked about. We'll talk about that later. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us in this time. Your word promises that you will, and so we rest upon that promise. Lord, we pray in the next few moments as we hear your word proclaimed, that we would receive it with joy, that it would change and transform our hearts, that it would turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, if there are hearts of stone still in this room, and that those of us who are trying to follow you would be encouraged and edified by it. May we be perpetually drawn to repentance by your glorious word and your glorious promises. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Today, we're continuing our understanding of happiness, true happiness. Where does, where does that actually come from? But we need to remember at the beginning of this that happiness isn't, isn't defined as just a perpetual state of bliss, but rather as, as contentment in the storm and contentment in plenty in contentment contentment in much and in little that's really what we're we're getting after here we're not understanding this this perpetual state of just wow everything's wonderful all the time because sometimes god sends his people through trials amen he sends you through difficulties and what does he do with those difficulties he burns the dross away he, he uses the sharp edge to, to, to grain a little bit more of your worldliness off, to, to cut a little bit more of the sin out of your heart, to refine you more and more. And in those times of trial, what does the Lord call us to be? He calls us to be content. You see, that's real happiness. How do you get through the hardest, most difficult, most painful trials of your life? Because the Bible makes it clear that all things come from the Lord for our good. True happiness. And where do we find such a thing? Here in the Beatitudes. Jesus is literally giving us a road map to true happiness. This is why it's incredibly important for us to heed every single one of these. Now, there's this problem that we have, I think, with the Beatitudes here in Matthew chapter 5, and also with the Ten Commandments, is we take them as isolated, individual little statements. But that's not what they are. The Ten Commandments are meant to be taken as a whole And they're also meant to be as an index for the rest of the book of the law of the Old Testament, and the Beatitudes are meant to be taken as a whole. And if you read them rightly, and I'm going to take us through the first several that we've already gone through today, if we read them rightly, we see that it's a map, a path, a road, a trajectory for us to go on to find what it means to be blessed, happy, truly, truly happy. How do they fit together? Okay, I I want to run us through. First, what's the first one? Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what what does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. In other words, in order for you to have the kingdom, to find the kingdom of God, to be a part of the kingdom of God, for the promise of God, of blessing, of provision, of rescue, of instruction, all of it, you start with poverty. Isn't that interesting? You have to start with zero To come to the Lord, to enter into the kingdom of God, you start with nothing. You don't come to God by saying, look at what I am. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished in my life. No, you come in abject poverty. You start with nothing. Poverty of spirit. In other words, you can say with the disciples, where else will I go? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Where, where else would we, would we go? Where else, how could we hear anything else? You alone can tell us what's true. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Where else shall we go, teacher? You're the only one that can tell us. We have nowhere else to go. That's what it means to be in the poverty of spirit. That's the starting point. To know you've got nowhere else to go other than Jesus. And that's good news. That's good news. Many of us, God put us there. Later in our lives, and he did did so through difficult trials and hardships. But for some of us, we were just brought up in Christian homes from the jump, and we got to just know no. Where else would I go? No, literally, where else would I go? (laughs) I would go to Jesus. That's the only option that I have, and that's what I want for my children. I want them to be raised up in such a way. But we start with absolute poverty. That's the starting point. It's the fear of the Lord. The disciples remember they watched with terror whenever Jesus stopped the storm and stopped the waves in the boat, and yet they stayed. Why? Remember, Do you remember that story, right? The storm's raging in the boat. Jesus stands up, and he says, sit down and shut up. That's basically what he said to the storm. And the storm said, yes, sir, and the waves went flat. And then all the disciples were like, they didn't respond with, yay, the storm's over. They responded with, God is in the boat with us. And the proper amount of fear resonated in their hearts. But they didn't leave. They got back to the shore and the disciples stayed with Jesus. Why? Because they knew they didn't have anywhere else to go. Where else would we? You see, they had poverty of spirit. They didn't have much else. You see Jesus rebuked those disciples again and again and again throughout his ministry. They didn't have much else, but they had that. They knew they had nowhere else to go. Where else will we go, teacher? You alone have the words of life. And that poverty of spirit does not drive you to some storybook version of Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not some pretty cartoon version of Jesus that's all soft and squishy. That's not the the real Jesus. The, the, The poverty of spirit drives you to the real Jesus, to the Jesus with the hard teachings. And when he gives the hard teachings, you say with the disciples, where else would I go? I don't have anywhere else to go. You're the only one. You're the only one I can go to. You alone have the words of life. You go to the Christ with the hard teachings. You go to the Christ who flipped tables. You go to the the Messiah who rescues us by becoming like us and dying a gruesome, terrifying death. And then he tells us to do the same. That's the kind of Jesus that we're driven to in the poverty of spirit. To the Christ that we are taught about in the scriptures. To the Christ who flipped tables. To the Christ who ran with whips. To the Christ who openly rebuked the enemy. That's who we're driven to and nowhere else, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of your imagination. Often I hear, well, I don't believe God could ever do that. I don't, I don't, believe, I don't believe in a God that would do something like that after we teach something that's clearly in the Scriptures. I don't believe in a God who would do something like that. Well, you, what you believe in doesn't matter. What does the Bible say? That's the God. That's the Christ. That we are driven to. To the word and to the living word alone is where we go. He alone has the words of life. Where else would we go? Do you see? When you are truly in that poverty of spirit, that's where you're driven. And realizing that, that apart from him, you are completely destitute and utterly poor. Then and only then do you receive the kingdom. Do you see that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs... And I want you to notice something else about these Beatitudes? If you look through all of them, the rest of them it says, for they shall, for they shall, for they shall, meaning they will in the future at some point. But that first one doesn't say that, does it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of God. When you know you have nowhere else to go but Jesus, that's the gate you have entered into the kingdom of God. When you know in your heart of hearts there's nowhere else to go but him. Where would I go? Where else would I go? You alone have the words of life. You are in his kingdom. Realizing that, that apart from him you are utterly poor, then and only then will you receive the kingdom of God. And then and only then will you be a king because that's what the Bible says happens to Christians, right? We are raised up with Christ to do what? To rule and reign with him in the new heavens and new earth. The Bible says that. That's not, I'm not being crazy here. This is just what the Bible says. And if you are poor, do you get it? Then you are a king. Do You see how that works? I'm. I'm reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis's story, Prince Caspian. The kids just watched the movie. They're not in here. They're all working the nursery this morning. But that's okay. I can talk about it and maybe not cry. Maybe, I make no promises. But my kids, they recently watched the Prince Caspian movie, and the and the movie's not exactly like the book, but it's close. You know, it gets it gets it gets pretty close. But I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis' story, the story of, of Prince Caspian. And the whole, one of the big driving narratives of that story is that they can't find Aslan. Now, Aslan is Lewis's Jesus character, right? They, they can't find him. But the reason that they can't find him is interesting. It's because they won't look for him. Did you notice that about that story? You see, they they, they go back into Narnia. Narnia is in disarray. And the only one who can save it is Aslan. And everybody knows it. But you know who they refuse to look for? Is Aslan. And all the, all the, the children, the, the leaders, the, the main characters of the story, they're trying to solve the problem by their, by their leadership skills, by their strength, by their power. And they each take turns using their reason or their strength or their power or their abilities. And they just they can't do it. They try to solve it with, with themselves, with their own intellect, their own resourcefulness, their own strength. And literally the whole opening sequence of the movie and of the book too is just their failure after failure after failure after failure and it's not until everything fails (laughs) okay it's not until they're poor where they finally listen to their little sister you see the little sister lucy the lucy character in the series she has been looking for Aslan for the jump, but she's a little sister, you know? And who listens to the little sister? Nobody ever listens to the little sister. That's just how it works, right? That's why little sisters are often very loud because they're used to not being listened to. <laughs> you know, like they amp, they amp hard, okay? Because they're used to that. Then finally, at the end of the story, they say, we, got, we have nowhere else to go. We have to send Lucy, this little girl on a horse, out to go find Aslan. And so they do. They send her out to go search for him. And guess what happens? Well, she finds him, yeah, but more like he finds her. But the point was, do you get it? They had nowhere else to go. They were poor. Everything else had failed them, and they only had one place to turn. And the tone of the story shifts when they find him. I mean, yes, everybody's excited. Yeah, we've got him. We're going to win now. Things are going to be okay. But the tone shifts a little bit to why didn't you come sooner? The answer is easy because they weren't poor enough yet. Do you see? The Lord, if you are his, will be faithful to you. And He will break you and break you and break you and break you until you are poor enough to go to Him. If you are His, He will not let go. Amen. That's good news. I would much rather be broken and sad and poor and destitute and rich in heaven and a king in Narnia than have it all here. Do you see? They and we needed to be reminded that only in Jesus is our hope. And when do you go? When you are poor in spirit and know there is nowhere else to go. What happens when, they, when you're there? You see, when you're poor in spirit, you are made a king. And then from that moment in the story forward, they move out conquering. Why? Not because they're great conquerors, but because Aslan is with them. Do you see? Because the lion's with them now. And they move out and they eradicate the enemy. And they they put them underneath their feet and they surrender in all of those wonderful things. But it's not because of their strength. It's not because of your strength. It's because of His. It's His strength that makes you strong. It's His wisdom that makes you wise. It's hope in Him that makes you brave. Whenever everything else is falling apart, He's the one that stands firm. You see, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they are kings because everything you have is his and you know it's his. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So blessed, happy are the poor in spirit because they have the kingdom and they rule with Christ. All right, let's go to the next one. So blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Because when you're poor in spirit and you're in the kingdom of God, you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? And one of the, the Holy Spirit has two roles that it, pl- that it plays. It convicts you of your sin and it comforts you when you confess. That's it. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is this is this great white hot light of conviction. Whenever you enter into the presence of God, the Lord takes His flashlight of the Holy Spirit and goes and shines it right on your sin. Amen? And it makes you squish a little bit, doesn't it? It makes you uncomfortable. It bothers you. It, uh, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. You see, blessed are those, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we're not just talking about folks who walk around sad. We're talking about the Holy Spirit coming and convicting of our sin. We confess and repent our sin, the Holy Spirit itself comforts us by reminding us of Jesus and how he died for our sins. And if you are poor in spirit, you are driven to Jesus because you have nowhere else to go. And you have received as that the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he convicts you of your sin, you confess your sin, and he comforts you. Now, but I should make a qualifier here, because we're talking about a godly grief, not a worldly grief, and the Bible warns us of both. We're talking about godly grief, not worldly grief, and the Bible warns us of both. Godly grief leads to what? Leads to life. Worldly grief leads to, the Bible says, death. There's a difference here. We're talking about godly grief. There's two types, the godly and the worldly. Godly grief brings about repentance and life. Worldly grief brings about death. How do you know the difference? Is your grief driving you to Jesus or away from Him? That's how you know the difference. Okay? Is your grief, is the grief over your sinfulness driving you to Christ because you went through that gate first of being poor in spirit, of knowing there's nowhere else to go, right? So you're being driven by the grief over your sin to Jesus or are you being driven away from Him? You're either being driven to life in Christ or death apart from Him. That's it. That's the only two places. There's no in-between. There's no third way. It is only to Christ or to death. Are you driven more and more? Maybe I should say it a different way. Are you driven to Christ and confession of your sin, and repentance of your sin, or are you driven to just try harder? Do you know what I'm talking about? To more and more attempts at, at personal perfection. No, no, I'm going to get it right this time. I'm going to get it right this time. I'm going I'm to live a better life. And you refuse to confess your sin. You refuse to deal with the actual sin. You refuse to confess and repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead you just say, no, 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 no I'm going to get it right. I'm going right. to do better. I'm going to do better. I'm not going to confess my sin, but I'll fix it this time. I know how I'm going to fix it. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's It's a confessionless, repentanceless life. And that only will lead to depression and despair and anxiety and nihilism. That's it. It won't go anywhere else. If you are just trying to perfect yourself, and you're refusing to go to Jesus, and you're refusing to confess your sin to Him, and you're refusing to lay it at His feet and repent of your sin there with Him at the cross, if you're refusing to do that, if you're just trying to make yourself better, I'm going to keep these rules better, I'm going to live a better life, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, if that's all you're doing, you're going to get depressed. Okay? You're going to be filled with anxiety. You're going to be filled with, with fear. And you're eventually you're eventually going to give up. And I'm convinced that when we see people leave Christianity, when we see people apostatize, this is what's actually happening. They were never really following Jesus in the first place. They were just trying to follow the rules. And eventually it piled up, and it piled up, and it piled up, and it destroyed them. And they became nihilists. you know what a nihilist is? A nihilist is someone who says, who cares whatever this is the way that life is I'm just gonna let the current take me so what depression fear anxiety they, they begin to take medications that make them numb to their anxieties and the fears that they have in the world this is why anti-anxiety medicines are such a dangerous thing I'm listen to me listen to me closely a little bit of anxiety is good for you did you know that it's true A little bit of anxiousness is good for you. Why? Because that's conviction. (laughs) Right? Okay, you should be anxious... If you are driving on the highway next to somebody who's obviously inebriated and might kill you, right? That should make you nervous. <laughs> that should that should bother you. You should be anxious if you are are just crazy spending all the money in your bank account. You should be that should worry you. Oh no, we might be in trouble here. You should be anxious if your children are refusing to follow the Lord. That should put some anxiety within you. You should be anxious if you're continuing to enter into greater and greater sin. But when when we medicate ourselves whether through actual prescription drugs or through drinking too much or through using illegal drugs whatever it might be whatever we medicate ourselves to take that anxiety away you know what you're really doing what's the role of the holy spirit to do what to convict you let's put it in a little bit of a different phrase to make you a little anxious right I know what I'm doing is wrong. Uh, The Lord's telling me. But if you numb yourself to those feelings through marijuana, through whatever, pick your use here. If you numb yourself to those feelings by every time you get a little nervous, you go back on the bottle a little harder. If you numb yourself to those feelings, you're actually running from the conviction of the Lord. Do you see how this stuff works? This is not crazy, right? And I know that many of you in this church with us right now who are members here and who are visitors here have walked this life before. That's why I'm camping out on it. Okay? Because you know what's true. You know. Don't play around with those anti-anxiety meds. I know they will give the, you can walk into a doctor's office today. It's so easy, right? It's so easy. I'm feeling a little anxious. Here's the script. There's a pill for that. Watch out. Watch out. I know, we live in I could You could walk to just about any corner and find weed. Amen? Y'all know, this is real life. This is real, look, this is true. I'm telling you, that stuff numbs you. It takes your anxiety away from you for the purpose of pushing you farther away from Jesus. A little bit of stress is good for you. It's the Lord working on you. It's the Lord giving you responsibilities. God, like babies, bruh, babies are stressful. Amen? Amen. Amen. But man, it's a good stress, <laughs> right? It's a good stress. You're raising a kid in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but no one slept in two months. I know, welcome to babies, <laughs> right? That's normal, that's part of babies. Embrace that good gift. Embrace that, that stress, that pressure. The Lord's given that to you for a good purpose. Don't go into this, to the worldly grief where you run away from the Lord. Run to him. God, this is too much. Amen. And he sent it and he's going to refine you with it. Amen. Don't fall into that nihilistic law keeping. I'm going to do everything perfect myself also because that lands you in the giving up. You give up because you just can't do it. Do you, give, do you give up because you just can't do it? Let's ask that question. Are you a nihilist? Let's, fun, let's, let's ask this question. Do you, just, do you just give up because you just can't do it? Or do you run to Jesus because you just can't do it? You see, there's a difference here. There's a difference here. Because if you stack the law of God up, guess what? Ain't none of us keeping it. No. It's, it is incredible. It's too much. So what do you do? I just can't do it. I give up. Or do you run to Jesus? Jesus, I just can't do it. <laughs> Please help me. You know, honestly, a great understanding of this would be like a football coach. Okay. What kind of, so let's say that you got a football team, right? There's a lot of football happening right now, so I think I can use this illustration and it might land. There's a lot of football happening in the world right now. Opelousas High School is going to the dome for the first time in its history. Like, there's all kinds of cool things happening around us. It's exciting times. But listen, if you got a football coach and you got kids on the field, Day one of two-a-days, those kids on the field can't do it. Amen? <laughs> like, they can't. They, they've been having their feet up during the fall season or, or uh, during the spring season. They haven't been working that hard. They're, just, they're lackadaisical. Things have been slow for them. They can't do it yet. And every now and then on that football team, the coach has a couple of kids who just say, I can't do it. I give up. And what does the coach do to those kids? He either gives them a swift kick to the butt and gets them back on track, or he kicks them. That's a good coach right? That's what a good coach should do. It's the same thing with us, okay? We, we don't look at the task before us and just give up. That's, that's, we, we train instead. We practice and we learn and we get better. You do get better over time. You do grow in righteousness over time. That's true. But if all you're doing is trying to keep the rules better and better, you're missing the whole point, and you'll eventually end in that depression, that anxiety, that fear, and you'll give up. Watch out for that. Watch out for that. So, are you reminded of our poverty of spirit that drives us to Christ when we trust on Him because? We become his brothers, heirs of the kingdom, kings and queens of Narnia, so to speak, ruling and reigning with Christ. Then we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. We mourn over it. We confess it. And he comforts us by reminding us of Jesus's promise that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sin. You got it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. That was just a review. You ready? Okay. I got two new ones for you today. And I'm going to go quickly. First, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This one's fun, okay? I'm going to go fast, but man, this one's fun. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? Meekness is submission, Okay, meekness is you get a picture of meekness whenever it's Jesus and he's he's weeping so hard and sweat and blood is like popping out of his pores. He's under so much stress and anxiety. But in the garden, he says, what? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. That's meekness. That's submission. That's the picture of meekness. Jesus is the word made flesh, God incarnate. But there he is in his meekness, submitting to the will of the Father. Jesus could have summoned legions of angels whenever he was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, but he didn't do it. He went through it patiently, submissively. Why? Because it was a part of the plan. Because it was his purpose. It's what had been set forth for him to do before the foundation of the world. The truly meek are those who submit All of their life to the word of God. You see how it happens in order though, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, because they go to Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, because they go to Jesus. And you continue to be grown and sanctified. And blessed are the meek, because they submit all of their lives to Jesus' command. Now there is this false humility. And I do want to spend just a moment here. There is this false humility that exists. A lie That we must be nice. Have you ever heard that word before? Nice is a four-letter word, and I I mean that, okay? At, At no point in the Bible, here's the problem, is that we are from the deep south, where we are polite, right? We are hospitable, and we are nice, aren't we? Nice is not a word that pops up in the Scriptures. Nice is not defined in the Bible. And often, whenever we see meek, we think, nice don't we but niceness avoids direct commands of the scriptures there is no command thou shalt be nice in fact i would i'd bet with you that nice is actually evil and opposed to the gospel now some of y'all are looking at me sideways and that's okay just listen what do you mean no just listen just listen okay i would say that being nice is actually being evil and being opposed to the gospel now here's what i mean What do nice people do? Nice people avoid conflict. And they let their friends go to hell. Nice people don't fight when the word of God is on the line. Because they're nice. Nice people allow sin to exist in their relationships around them and in their workplace environments and in their families because they don't want to make a big scene. They refuse to pull the bat out and kill it. Nice people would prefer that everybody just get along at the expense of the obedience to the Word of God. Do you see? Nice is evil. Nice ain't in the Bible. And the word meek definitely does not mean nice. I have something in my notes here that I'm actually going to skip. No, no. I'm going to say it. I would argue in some instances, nice people are actually agents of Satan. You're welcome. I'm serious. I'm not even joking. Because they do all of those things. When we think meek, we think nice. But that's not what it means. Jesus describes himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, as meek and lowly of heart. Jesus is meek. Okay, so he describes himself as such, then what does he do as a, as a meek person? Well, he was not nice according to any of those definitions that we just read. He he went after the Pharisees without apology. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, Jesus, that wasn't very nice. But you see... But you know what it was? It was meek. Why? Because he was fully submitted to the words of God. It's meekness. Blessed means happy. Truly, truly, truly happy. Blessed are the meek. Not the nice. Now it isn't nice and it definitely isn't meek to allow somebody to slip away to death and sin because you refuse to confront their sin. True meekness loves to the point where you confront sin in the world, you rebuke it and you offer it the path of life which is the path to Christ. That when you see those moments pop up around you in your day-to-day life, you pray like Jesus. Father, not my will. That yours be done and you lay your neck on the line right and you say i'm about to burn some relationships and some bridges here here we go i'm about to not be southern nice anymore i'm about to demand the following of jesus's law and commands here we go you lay your neck on the chopping block for christ and for his kingdom you lay up your reputation your career your livelihood all of it your personal peace all of it because where else would you go Jesus alone has the words of life. That's meekness. That's the meekness of Christ. He submits to all of the will of the Father. And if you are meek like Christ, you will inherit the earth with Christ. Let's move on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, no, excuse me, for they shall be satisfied. I mixed two of them together there for a second. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A better way to start would be to ask the question, what does it it mean to hunger and thirst? Let's ask it a different way. What do you want? I think that would be a better way to ask it. What do you want? And I don't mean like, what do you want? I don't mean it like that. I mean, I mean, what do, you, what do you want? What drives you in life? Is it comfort? Is it convenience? Is it a certain amount of money in the bank account? Is it a certain type of temperament in your house? Is it, is it a certain type of quality of living? What is it? What, what do you want? What's the rudder of your entire life? What motivates all your decisions of everything you do? What sends you out on your trajectory of life? If you're a good little Christian, then you probably say, well, the Lord and His commands, Right? that's what drives me, if you're a good little Christian. Or or maybe you say, uh, the gospel, the gospel drives me, if you're a good little Christian. Or or maybe you say, the classic Sunday school response, Jesus. (laughs) And, And those are great, but I'm not asking you to give me the right answer. I'm asking you what's true. What actually drives you? What drives actually all the decisions that you make? What motivates everything that you do in your whole life? And if it is true, is that the right answer? What you say, is it correct? The beatitude here tells us that our want, our desire, the thing that we hunger and thirst for should be righteousness. The blessed life, the happy life, has the desire for righteousness as the steering rudder of the ship. It's the main driver for all of life. That's what our motivation should be. In other words, let me me roll this back a little bit here. here, okay? Are you struggling with depression in your life? Don't raise your hand. This is a, a rhetorical question. Are you struggling with anxiety in your life? Are you struggling with depression in your life? Are you struggling with that temptation to nihilism in your life? Okay, Let me ask you. Is your driver, a hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness? And I would wager that you would say no. Right? Because blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is it stuff? Is that what drives you? Is it money? Is it success? Is it your reputation? No wonder you're fighting your re- reputation because the secret to a happy life is to be driven by hunger and thirst for righteousness, not stuff, not things, not income. If you're hungering for stuff, stuff ebbs and flows, right? Stuff goes away and comes. Stuff doesn't work that way, it passes away. And this is why the Pharisees, the self righteous people, are always miserable. Have you ever met a Pharisee, the self righteous folks? Are they happy? No, (laughs) they're miserable, angry people. That's how self-righteous folks were. They're always miserable. And not only them, but their kids are miserable. And very often their kids move out of the house the first shot they get, and they apostatize. Why? Because they were miserable in that house. Because they were Pharisees. Pharisees. In other words, Pharisees, they were chasing the wrong kind of righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 says this. This is Jesus talking. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? That means that their standards, the Pharisees, the legalist standards, weren't the same as the law of God. They were keeping another extra law, and they were laws that they made up. Remember Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead bones and all uncleanness. Mark chapter 7, verse 8, You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. This is what Jesus is going after in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, don't murder. And that's the, that's the law for the lawkeepers. Well, I didn't kill anybody today. Well, good job. <laughs> you didn't kill anybody today jesus then brings all of the law out and he says leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people how are we doing not great (laughs) right but you shall love your neighbor as yourself i am the lord your god see the pharisees they left that part of the law out didn't they and they said well i didn't kill anybody today Good job, me. That's an easy one to keep, hopefully, right? I hope that's an easy one to keep. But the don't bear a grudge against anyone and love your neighbor as yourself no, those are high standards of law. But the Pharisees hated God's law and they rejected those true laws and instead they embraced the fake laws, the wicked laws, the laws that only covered the surface. I didn't commit adultery today good. You didn't cheat on your spouse. Did you look at a woman with lust? I don't want to talk about that part. Oh, okay. Because that's the commandment under the command. I didn't kill anybody today. Well, that's great. Did you hate somebody? I don't want to talk about that. Well, that's the commandment under the command. You see? The point of Jesus was what he was trying to do was shake everybody around and show them that the Pharisees weren't actually righteous. They had a self-righteousness. But that could be us so easily. The Pharisees left out important parts of the law because they didn't hunger for righteousness, they hungered to be right. You see the difference there? They didn't hunger for righteousness, they hungered to be right. They wanted to be the most important people in the room. That was their God. And so they would simplify the laws down to easy things that they knew that they could keep and add some ceremonial extra things on top of it that only the wealthy and affluent could do, like certain types of washings and certain types of garments and all those things. And they were like, look at us. We are the righteous now. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You hate people and you're committing adultery in your heart. No, 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 no. You you ain't righteous. Get out. You don't know what righteousness is. He tore down their self-righteousness to reveal to everybody else. But if we think about it, If you want to be a religious person that's right, what do you do in our day-to-day? Well, you you don't drink, you don't smoke, and you don't cuss, at least not around church people, right? And then, ta-da, you are a religious right person. But That's not, the Bible doesn't say those things, okay? The Bible does have specific commandments for the way that you you should treat your body, and the way that you should regard alcohol, and the way that you should regard the use of your tongue. All the, the Bible's clear about all those things, but those three things aren't the righteous check boxes. But in the deep south, for some reason, we think that they are. And then we add extra things to it. We don't watch bad movies. We don't get tattoos. Men should only wear suits. Ladies should only wear dresses. No makeup. And we only read the King James Version. Some of y'all went to churches like that. That's why you're laughing. That's all extra laws. That's all extra laws. That's self-righteous. The Pharisees wanted the easy-kept laws, and Pharisees today also want the easy-kept laws. You see? You hating people in your heart? Are you? Are you lusting after someone else and committing adultery in your heart? Are you? Let's pick on ourselves a little bit. We're picking on all these people out here. Let's 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 choose to pick on ourselves, shall we? Allow me to step on your toes for a moment, sir. We only do expository preaching in this church. Some of y'all are like, I don't know what that word means. Good, don't look it up. (laughs) Excuse me, excuse me, sir. We we sing psalms and hymns only. If it's newer than the year nineteen hundred, we abdicate from such a wicked song. No, we don't. We don't do that. That's not a law in the Bible. Excuse me, sir, we only believe in classical Christian education. Mm. Excuse me, sir, we are homeschool only. Sola homeschoola, in fact. No, dude. That's all self-righteousness. See, that's the same thing. All of those things are great things, and honestly, many of them should be pursued and should probably be fought for as the standard. But there's a law Underneath those, parents, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and they're rising up and in their laying down. And I think you'll find that standard much higher than classical education only, homeschool your kids, right? You'll find that standard of raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and they're rising up and in their laying down much, much, much higher than that. But that's the point. That's God's command. There's the righteousness we need to hunger and thirst for, and only if we chase that we will be satisfied. But the phony, the phony Pharisee, the phony loves the easily kept laws, the surface laws. Why? Because they are on display. And the phony, listen to me, this is important. You listening? The phony Pharisee wants to be seen. You listening? They want to be seen keeping the law of God because they want the reputation of the religious person. They want the clout. They want the manifestation. But for a real Christian that hunger and thirsts for obedience to God's actual laws, you know what they want? The last thing they want. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you're clawing and scraping for righteousness, if you're fighting to follow Christ in all of his commands and everything in your life, then the last thing you want is to be on display. Why? Because you know you're bad at it. You're bad at it. You screw up all the time. But the phony Pharisee that keeps the surface laws, they want to be front and center. Do you see the difference here? Do you see it? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that are clawing and scraping for it, that want it more than anything else that directs their life, they don't want to be on display because they know how short they fall so do you know of an unhappy person that seems like they're keeping the law i would just about guarantee you that they're keeping the surface laws and not the real laws do you know what i mean That happens when we're keeping an alternate law or hungering for an alternate righteousness. Rather than love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we decide to become, I don't know, very strict Sabbatarians. Here's the list of things that I do not do on Sundays. Let me tell you about my list. And I I think that Sabbatarian is the right thing to do. Let me just say that out loud. And I think that you should rest on the Lord's day, and I think there should be things that you don't do on the Lord's day. But there's a law under that law. You can take a good thing and make it your God, your self-righteousness, very, very quickly. Rather than raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we create crushing lists of do's and don'ts for our children. And we forget the beginning of that passage. Do you know what the beginning of that passage is, where it says, raise, like, raising up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Do you know what the beginning of that passage says? It says, fathers, do not provoke your sons to anger. Do you know what that means? In, in in a very short way, let me be very clear with you on what it means because I know I got a lot of guys in here with little growing families. Let me tell you very clearly what it means. It means know your kids' frame. The two year old's got different standards than the seven year old does, because the two year old still doesn't know how to not poop in their pants, you know? Like they got a different governing principle over their life. Know your kids' frames. Raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Give them rules. Give them biblical discipline. Give them consequences, yes, but know their frame. You see how these important principles all play? They all play, and you have to keep them together. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Don't create crushing lists of do's and don'ts. You're going to drive them away from Jesus. You're going to give them a wrong picture of what the gospel looks like. Teach them and train them in righteousness and discipline them whenever they fail. Yes, but know your kids' frames. Like sometimes it's 9.30 p.m. They should have been in bed two hours ago. It's a miracle that they're still awake. And shocker, they're losing their minds on the floor. Well, they're exhausted. And you kept them up too late. That's not their fault. Do you see what I'm saying? Know your kids' frames. Set them up for success. Train them. Raise them up. Train them and train them and train them. And yeah, discipline them at the appropriate times. And have them keep the law of God, yes, but know their frame. Know their frame. All those things are true. And I don't, this is not a raising kids sermon, but maybe we should do some of those in the near future. But if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we fail and are reminded that we don't have it, we run to Christ with gospel hope and confidence. And then we go back to doing what? To pursuing righteousness. You see? When you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and you screw up and you have the poverty of spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit because you mourn over your sin, you run to Jesus, you confess your sin, Jesus, I've screwed up again, and you go right back to it because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what happens over time? You grow. If pride has you, you don't do any of that. You're worshiping a false god. If, you, if your righteousness is just you trying to be better than those around you, then you fall grossly short quickly and you become angry and bitter and you keep a list of wrongs and your pride will keep you from running to Jesus for the forgiveness that you need. You don't get happiness from law keeping. Did you hear me? You don't get happiness from law keeping. You get happiness from a hunger for righteousness. You see the difference? That's what you get it from. You get beaten down from law-keeping. You get beaten down from your own efforts. And you beat down those in your charge by imparting on them a weight that they cannot cannot bear. That's the same thing that the Pharisees did. Do you remember that? The Pharisees imposed laws upon people that they couldn't bear because they didn't tell them how to be forgiven. But we, as God's people, are called to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger to keep God's commands, all of them all of them. And we do so with the assurance that when we fail, we confess and forgive and we go again. So, do you want to be happy? What must you do? You must be poor in spirit. In other words, there's nowhere else to go. You are given over to Jesus, the light of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and now you begin to see your sin and you mourn over it. You submit to Him, you are meek out of it, out of, out of meekness, you go to Him, you trust Him, you confess to Him, and then when your sins are forgiven, you hunger, you hunger for what? You hunger to do it again. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, for His righteousness. You want to please Him. You want to be like Him. You want to do His work, and that's the rest. Of the Beatitudes. We'll get into those later mercy, purity, peace, patience, perseverance. But how does that make us happy? All right, here we go. You ready? John chapter 14, verse 23. Y'all listen. This is how it makes you happy. I'm wrapping up with this. Listen close. Jesus answered him If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What really is the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of happiness? What really is it? It's the pursuit of God. Draw near to Him, and He draws near to you. This is why when we're in our sin, we know intuitively that, that God's going to find us. Oh, we get uncomfortable when we go to church. We get around God's people. But if we submit humble, if we pour, confess, and we pursue Him, we hunger for Him, He meets us. It's like a kid acting for a gift, asking for a gift, right? This is Christmas time, right? And so the children have their lists, do they not? That's true, though. It's it's Christmas time, and and kids like kids already ask for anything. But it's like around this time of year, it's dialed up. It's it's dialed up because they know, like, I might actually have a shot this time. My odds are higher than normal. Like, we this might happen. So they start asking for crazy things like ponies. Don't do ponies. Don't do it. It's like a kid asking for a gift. God. Please, can I, can I have this? That's the way that we respond to the Lord. Like a child, childlike faith. Lord, please, can I, can I have this? Lord, where else will I go? And he promises that if we pray like that, he will hear us and he will grant our request for more of him. So, do you want to change the world? Who doesn't? Do, do, do you want to build Christian households and communities? Good. Amen. Amen. Do you, do you want to kill your sin and be free of it once and for all instead of it dragging you down again and again and again? Or maybe you just want to be, I just don't want to be depressed anymore. I just want to be happy again. This is where it starts. This is where it starts. You knowing that there is nowhere else to go but to Jesus. So go. Let's pray.